Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. It's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Japan's growing role in the Indo-Pacific security. So I'm joined uh, today by Lieutenant General retired H.R. McMaster, who's the Japan chair at the Hudson Institute and obviously former assistant to the president for national security. And if I were to list all of his assignments during his 34 years of service in the U.S. Army, I think we wouldn't have any time for, for discussion. So we'll just have to leave it as, as a short introduction. Uh, I'm also joined by Dr. Jeffrey Horning from the RAND Corporation, uh, who's quite simply my go-to guy for any kind of developments on Japan security or the U.S.-Japan alliance. And uh, the only problem I have with Jeffrey is whenever I'm about to write something that's very timely and very cutting edge, I find out he's already published on it and probably several times, and he probably wrote about it a year or so earlier. So uh, that's, that's my problem, though. Um, we will have an opportunity for questions later from both uh, our in-person audience as well as virtual audience, uh, and there's a means for the virtual audience to send questions, and uh, our assistant will read those to us. So I'm going to launch right into the discussion because uh, we've got a lot to cover of the entire Indo-Pacific region in a short amount of time. So I'm going to uh, first turn first to General McMaster, uh, kind of starting at the 30,000-foot level, sort of a, a broad area of um, much has been made recently of the U.S.-China strategic competition, as if only two countries are involved in this. Uh, but obviously, there are a lot of questions or a lot of countries in the, in the region, and they may have their own prisms that they look at, at that competition, as well as their own uh, objectives and, and strategies. So um, how do you think Japan sees the security environment that it's, it's in? And what do they see as their role in the region, and does that differ from how the U.S. sees their, their desired role in the region? Well, Bruce, thanks. It's great to be here with you and Jeff. I've learned so much from both of you over the years, and I really appreciate the great work Heritage is doing, especially these days in the area of defense and advance of the NDAA. I mean, it's just tremendous to read your products and learn from, from uh, Heritage every day. Yeah, hey, I would just say that Japan's role in the Indo-Pacific has grown over recent years, I think beginning with uh, Prime Minister Abe's vision for the free and open Indo-Pacific. And I think what's become clear, what's clarified the importance of that vision is the aggressiveness of the Chinese Communist Party. And in particular, Xi Jinping's effort to extend and tighten his exclusive grip on power internally, to extend the party's repression into, into Hong Kong, but to become more and more aggressive internationally in advancing this idea of national rejuvenation in China taking center stage and doing so in a way that combines co-option, economic and financial co-option oftentimes, with coercion, and then concealing very aggressive actions as just normal business practices. And I think what has clarified Japan's role and the importance of Japan's role is especially the aggression since, <laughs> since the CCP foisted COVID-19 on the world, right, by suppressing news of human-to-human -human transmission you're really going after and, and, and uh, repressing anyone who tried to ring the alarm bells, doctors and journalists, adding insult to injury with this really aggressive campaign of wolf warrior diplomacy. But of course, deeds as well, massive cyber attacks uh, across the, the Indo-Pacific region and beyond against medical research and pharmaceutical companies in the midst of the pandemic, a campaign of economic coercion against Australia, 
How about bludgeoning Indian soldiers to death on the Himalayan frontier? Uh, the weaponization of, of violence in the South China Sea, ramming and sinking Vietnamese vessels, and now this very aggressive posture towards Taiwan. And I think what this has done, Bruce, to get to your question, is it? I think it's clarified for Japan, but especially other countries across the Indo-Pacific. This is not a competition between the United States and, and, and China. This is not a choice between you know, Washington and Beijing. It's a choice between sovereignty and servitude. And this is why I think the vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific that, that I think Prime Minister Abe has to get full credit for is really catching on. And you see that with new forms of multilateral cooperation uh, in the areas of defense, certainly, but, but especially, I think, in the areas of, of, uh, of economics, of finance, and in technology. That's great. And, and you mentioned economics several times, so maybe just sort of a note to both of you is most of my questions are focused on security policies and foreign policy priorities. So, but feel free to bring in economics uh, because obviously Japan has a, a very large role in, in that for itself, but also in the region. Um, turning to you, Jeff, Japan has often been criticized for being very risk averse, uh, having a, a very slow, even glacially slow decision-making process. Um, but Prime Minister Abe implemented a number of initiatives with the SDF as well as more broadly on, on foreign policy during, the, uh, during his tenure. So how different is the Japan of today from five years ago? And you know, what, what is different about the SDF uh, force posture today than even just a few years ago? Yeah, great question. Um, thanks, Bruce. First, I want to thank um, Bruce, the Heritage Foundation, for, for um, giving me the opportunity to be with General McMaster as well. This is always, always a great time when uh, speaking at the Heritage Foundation. Um, in answer to your question, I think there's a, a couple ways of looking at that. The simple answer is yes, Prime Minister Abe has been much more proactive um, or taking Japan on a more proactive uh, uh, footing than his predecessors. And I think it is continuing, although we still we, Prime Minister Kishida is, is still new in his tenure, so we don't know how, how, um, what direction he'll take it. But I think if you look at it from first a diplomatic standpoint, uh, General McMaster already referenced the FOIP, and I, I think that's really import, important because not a lot of people appreciate the fact that Japan traditionally has not taken the sort of strategic leadership uh, position or role that that we see with the FOIP and. Um, it, it, it sets the parameters, if you will, of sort of what, what countries can expect Japan to do in like-minded countries. You see other um, nations like the United States, India, they take their own version of FOIP. It might, U, U.S. took FOIP, other countries have tweaked it a little bit, but um, Japan does deserve credit for that, um, Prime Minister Abe in particular. But at the same time, during Abe's tenure, um, you see Japan really developing strategic partnerships with Australia, with India, with uh, many European countries. Um, and then there's different tiers. You could say Australia and India are at the top, UK, France up there as well. Below that, you have Philippines, Singapore. Um, but you do have Japan developing these strategic partnerships that do involve important things like acquisition cross-servicing agreements, uh, information sharing agreements. These are critical. Um, and the, these are all new. This is something that Japan didn't have 10 years ago. Um, and so the, Abe does deserve credit for that. Um, and then another, before moving on to self-defense forces, another thing is the fact that Prime Minister Abe um, created the first national security strategy. 
There's new, there's always reports that it's going to be revised, hopefully it will, because it is quite out of date now. But the fact of the matter is, uh, Prime Minister Abe got serious about national security in a way that we hadn't seen his predecessors uh, get. And so um, that is something that uh, also he deserves credit for. But moving into the self-defense forces, the self-defense forces today are postured differently than they were before he came into office. Um, you see the Southwest Island chain uh, having these ground self-defense force bases. And on these ground self-defense force bases, you have, um, you, you have surface-to-air missiles, you have anti-ship cruise missiles. Um, Japan, we, we hear a lot about China's A2AD strategy, but Japan has its own A2AD strategy. And these are going to be critical choke points for the Japanese and for America if a, con a contingency happens in the region for, to be able to bottle up any Chinese forces. Um, and then the, the final word, and we can talk more about this in, in depth throughout our talk today, but Abe had increased uh, the, the budget for the defense. It's, it continues today. Um, and in, in those defense increases, we see things like standoff cruise missiles. Um, we see things like uh, the refurbishing of the Izumo-class um, helicopter destroyers to get the F-35B 30, F variants uh, to be able to launch from there. Um, we also see F-35s. Uh, procured under Abe. And, and there's a whole host of modernization efforts that Abe had pursued that really put Japan's self-defense forces on a different footing today than they were 10 years ago. And, and together, these become force multipliers for the United States if we ever have to think about any sort of contingency in the region. Um, yeah, I'm going to get into some of the, the <clears throat> sub-regions in a bit, but still sort of at the more macro level. Um, General McMaster, so we've heard about sort of how far Japan has come in the last few years, uh, but how, how much more do we want them to do and how far can they go? There's still a lot of you know, constitutional restraints, budgetary constraints, even though uh, Abe increased the defense budget, it's still hovering about 1% of GDP. Um, there's the diplomatic constraints of what, how will the neighbors react, uh, and then domestic constraints. So. Do you have a sense of, given North Korea's and Chinese actions the last several years, is the Japanese public more willing to do more than it was in the past? Does that give the leadership more leeway, or are there still just too many constraints on what we would like Japan to do? I think there are certainly constraints on, on what uh, some Japanese leaders would like to do and what we, we might like Japan to do in, in connection with bolstering defense for, really, I think we ought to make clear for the purpose of deterrence. And I think this is what would sell more with the, the Japanese public, certainly in a follow-on to the, the excellent uh, the white paper on defense from several years ago, which made a really sound case. I think, again, there's even more of a case to be made uh, when you see the, the aggression of, of the Chinese Communist Party and the, and the People's Liberation Army. And especially in connection with some of the new capabilities that, Bruce, I think we're going to talk about, uh, for example, long-range precision strike capabilities, which I think are essential for defense, right? If you're looking really at the proliferation of long-range uh, precision uh, missile capabilities and now maybe even the advent of hypersonics, it's important to not only be able to shoot down the arrows that are aimed at you, but also to be able to target the archer. And so I think a pragmatic argument for the range of capabilities that are needed in context of deterrence by denial, right? Convincing the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army that they cannot accomplish their objectives through the use of force. And of course, these capabilities are also very important to limit the PLA's ability to coerce Japan and others 
and to accomplish objectives below the threshold of a major military action. And I think this, of course, relates to the threat to Taiwan and, 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 the, and the possibility of you know, trying to isolate Taiwan. The sorts of capabilities that the SDF can develop are quite relevant to establishing really a, a theater security architecture that deters China more broadly and convinces Chinese leadership that they have much more to gain from maintaining peace and participating in the free and open Indo-Pacific rather than trying to create servile relationships and to create exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific. And I think what's really important to communicate maybe to the, to the Japanese people is that I believe China's objective is to isolate Japan, to isolate Japan uh, militarily, uh, but also economically. And Taiwan is the first step in doing that. And all you need to do is rotate the map, you know, 90 degrees counterclockwise, and take a look at, at really uh, what, what, uh, what, what Chinese coercion uh, of Taiwan would mean uh, for, you know, for, for Japan's uh, defense and, and ability even to conduct effective trade and commerce. Um, Jeffrey, so the general has brought up strike capabilities, and I know you've written on that. I think you wrote about it before I did. Um, <laughs> so let's delve a little bit into that. On you know, first of all, is is it a good idea? Do we want Japan to to have that uh, enemy-based strike capabilities? There have been a lot of euphemisms for it, uh, but in almost all cases, it's in the context of retaliatory preemptive attack as opposed to a preemptive attack before any kind of North Korean or Chinese actions. But sort of benefits, constraints, is it a good idea? Do we want to push them towards it? Is that a distraction from other SDF capabilities that we would want them to, to build before they, they go down that path? Yeah, no, this is a, um, this is a very uh, sensitive topic in Japan, and it's one that's, that's been getting a lot of attention. I do think um, you know, the bottom line, what Japan wants to do with this, it's obviously it's a sovereign, sovereign right to make. I, I, I do think that there are a lot of issues, though, that need to be deeply considered, um, some capabilities that need to be thought about bef before maybe we get to that point. Um, for instance, um, Japan's uh, passive defense capabilities on its bases. Um, there's a host of things that I think that, that the Japanese will need to consider, whether it be um, um, hardening um, munition stocks, fuel lines, whether it be hardened shelters for their fighters. These are things that don't usually make it to the top of the budget list, but they're crucial if Japan wants to be able to stay in the fight for a long time. I think um, deepening their, um, their munition stocks so that they do have the capability to fight for a long period of time if there is a defense of Japan situation. Um, and then also, there's, there's, you mentioned about constraints. There's a host of constraints when we think about Japan is going to have to consider more about dispersion, um, about resiliency. Um, they have over 6,000 islands. And these would be, there's a lot of islands that would be great platforms for unmanned assets, for, um, for emergency runways, for, for you name it, for the self-defense forces and for American forces. There's constraints in doing that, be it public uh, opposition, be it budgetary restraint, you know, building infrastructure on some of these things is going to be really difficult. But the more that Japan would be able to make um, potential targets for the for Chinese planners, it's going to make it very difficult for, in, in any sort of wartime situation because it's not just 
hitting Ishigaki or Yonaguni. It's going to be hitting all these various uh, targets out there. Um, but at the same time, Japan should be investing in more, going back to the point, passive defense measures, decoys, um, you name it, things that make it hard for um, Chinese planners to, to strike at Japan. And I think um, once Japan gets that part of the puzzle right, in terms of just strengthening um, defenses for, for critical infrastructure, for munitions, for, amu for, for fuel, then I think we could get to the point of talking about whether, whether strike is, should be the next step. But if we get to the part of talking about strike, that gets into a discussion then where the alliance, I think, needs to have a talk because we start then to have to talk about C2. Is Japan, resources, is Japan going to try to develop all this by itself? Because it's not just the, the munitions. You need the ID, the, the targeting, the battle assessment, all these things that go with strike capability. And if the, if the Japanese want to just rely on the United States for that, is the United States really willing to do that if, if they're just going to feed the information to the Japanese? Or do we move to a more integrated C2 structure at that point? Is that something that, that would be um, part of the, the conversation? And then finally, um, when, when we talk about these things, I do think we, the alliance will have to talk more about planning and, and you know, doctrine, concepts, all these things together, because it's not as simple as just Japan saying, we're going to strike a missile base in North Korea. You have the ROC Alliance, the US ROC Alliance, that's going to be a factor there. And, and Japan, it's not, missiles just do not fly through blue, blue airspace or you know, blue sky. There is friendly, potential for friendly fire there. And there's a lot of moving parts that I think need to be considered before we get to that discussion. Well, and it, it, it seems most of the statements are in a North Korean context, right. enemy base attack of North Korea. Uh, and then separately, there's a whole issue of repelling or retaking Southwest islands right. from China. You know, is, is there a Chinese aspect that Japan foresees in strike capabilities, or is it, you know, only a North Korean context? And then, you know, you brought up sort of the sensors and the shooters, where if Japan, do they need to buy their own sensors, and that's very expensive, and that takes away from other programs, or are they just going to rely on the U.S., which is limited in its own sensor capability, and we will have our own military missions? Um, so that's just, do they have their own or do they tap into ours? And then the command and control, which many have, have criticized Japan as well as South Korea for having in, inefficient or insufficient uh, C4ISR. So then you have the command and control. We don't have a combined forces command like we have on the peninsula. So it seems like a lot of issues that are going to have to be resolved or discussed at least uh, before you get to which gadget are we going to buy to, to do the actual putting steel on target. So, you know, it's, it's always good to get a, a discussion going, but it, it does seem like not only the, the constraints, but just so many issues that were at the very front end of that have not been discussed unless internally if Japan has been focusing on more of the details and it's only the, the politicians that are at the very general level. I mean, one, one comment on that. I, I do think that for a long time, the conversation, even internally in Japan, was more on the legalistic theoretical arguments for this. It was only in, in recent years, maybe in the last 10 years, maybe push that back a little further, 
that you started to get more of a conversation beyond the legal, beyond the theor theoretical to actual system kind of discussions. But again, at least my understanding is a lot of these discussions do focus on just that, the launchers, the, you know, the, the, the missiles, the shiny stuff, right. but not all the, the, other, the other important discussions that need to take place. It's not that those maybe haven't happened at some level, but I, I don't think they've happened to the point where there is conclusions on any of those items. And, and to push it to the Alliance discussion, I don't think the Alliance has had that sort of discussion on, on C2 or any of that. On, uh, certainly US-China has been getting a lot of uh, focus and we have a lot of, I think, newly minted China analysts who are, who are jumping in the, in the, the fray. Uh, I think the other country that's really come up recently is Taiwan. Um, General McMaster, you talked a bit about the, the Chinese threat, but maybe to bring it more down to the, the Taiwan scenario, you know, how, how real is the threat to Taiwan, not only sort of politically, but militarily? Is it all just for, for show, for political intimidation, or is that a real military threat that Beijing would be willing to carry out? I think it's a, a very real military threat. And the reason I think is that is because Xi Jinping has said he's determined, right? Determined uh, to subsume Taiwan, and and it's been taking action to do that. It goes actually goes beyond Xi Jinping, but but of course the the objective has been to try to to try to for for the party to accomplish such objectives below the threshold of a of a major military offensive, and to do so with again this kind of approach of co-option, coercion, and concealment to co-opt elites. To, to create economic and financial dependencies uh, and to, to conduct a sustained campaign of political subversion and disinformation to sap the Taiwanese will to defend themselves. Of course, when this took a turn for the worse from Xi Jinping's perspective was with the was national security law and the extension of the party's repressive arm into Hong Kong. And I think the Taiwanese people learned vicariously through that and, and you had the overwhelming victory of Tsai Ing-wen uh, and the agenda to really race to catch up for complacency, I think, for the first 15 years of this century in building up Taiwanese defense capabilities, again, to be able to achieve deterrence by denial. So I think there's an opportunity now for us to work together with other uh, allies like Japan and others in, in the region to, to help Taiwan bolster its defense. We're doing that mainly through arms sales, uh, but also to build up complementary defense capabilities like in, this, in, this, in the self-defense force Again, with the, with the effort of, of trying to convince uh, China it cannot accomplish its objectives with the use of force. I think it's really important to note that while so much attention has been paid to the, the violation of the air defense uh, identification zone in the south of Taiwan, there's been a permanent PLA Navy presence on the north side of Taiwan that I think is telegraphing some degree uh, the, the party's maybe uh, desire at some point to isolate Taiwan, maybe with a blockade. There are a number of other actions that the CCP could take from a coercive perspective, cyber attacks against China Telecom. They could go after satellite, China satellite, I mean, uh, Taiwanese satellite uh, communications or power grid and so forth. So I think the, the point that Jeff has made about resilience also applies to Taiwan because that's a big part of, of deterrence by denial, as well, as well as the range of other military capabilities with which you'd respond uh, to aggression. So I think it's, it's important to note that it's doable, I think, for Taiwan to catch up, right? It's not, a, it's not an easy military problem, right? Taiwan is the size of 
the state of Maryland. It's extremely mountainous in the east. The population is concentrated in the west where the Chinese would most likely have to land. Much of that is mud flats, and it's very limited as to where they can really conduct an effective landing. You know, the strait is stormy except for maybe a couple months a year. So there are some inherent advantages to the geography that if, if reinforced, especially with some asymmetrical capabilities that I think all of us would like to see the Taiwanese armed forces prioritize, I think it's, 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 it's possible to achieve deterrence. But I think what we, and, and I, know, um, I know Bruce, you wanted, this is a secondary part of the conversation, but I think what we have to do maybe now more than ever is highlight to the Chinese what the financial and economic uh, consequences would be of aggression toward Taiwan. Uh, because I, I think that there are actions that we, and I mean the free world could take, the United States, Japan, the European Union, and others, uh, that, that, that could be devastating uh, to China's economy uh, in response to aggression toward Taiwan. Jeffrey, it seems recently, and perhaps from December of last year, uh, a lot of senior level Japanese officials have more you know, inc issued increasingly strong statements about um, Japanese support for the defense of Taiwan, as well as more closely linking Japan's security to that of Taiwan's security. Is that a sea change just in the last 10 months or so, or has it been happening behind the scenes? Um, and then what what do they see as their role in a Taiwan crisis? Are they going to be a shooter or combat support? So, um, yeah, the, the the statements by senior officials, including the Biden-Suga the joint statement, the white paper, um, they've been getting a lot of attention. And I take the view that, and this might not be the view that a lot of people commonly hold, but I take the view that this doesn't represent any major change in, in terms of the content. If you look at the statements, the fact that the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait is important for Japan's security, or um, you know, the security of Taiwan is important for Japan, Japan is not committing itself to the defense of Taiwan. They're not committing themselves to even support the United States in any of these statements. They're saying something that has already been included in the 2005 2 plus 2 statement where they talked about the, the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait. So in terms of content, um, nothing is really different. And I would even say when, uh, when uh, Taro Aso gave a talk, he, it was a sort of a behind closed door talk that that he, was, he talked about that in the event of um, uh, something happening on Taiwan, that this could be a threat to Japan's survival. That, too, is not new. In fact, that's mimicking words from 2016 security legislation, where Japan has actually identified different categories, either an important influence situation or a threat to Japan's survival situation, um, where, depending on the situation, Japan would act in different ways. And, and so in terms of what we see, I don't think it represents anything different content-wise. Japan's policy hasn't changed. That said, the fact that you have a lot of vocal statements, a lot of vocal support, a lot of public support for Taiwan is new, because this is something that, until very recently, Japanese officials did not go on the record talking about the importance of Taiwan. And so that, I think, is important in and of itself, because it's providing diplomatic breathing room to Taiwan, it's showing support of a like-minded uh, partner. But the fact is, the, the, the second part of your question, it, it actually ties into the security legislation. 
the, the security legislation tells us what legally Japan is capable of doing. It does not tell us what Japan is willing to do. And that's, the, that's really the, the, you know, the $10,000 question here. And I think that's a question that all of us um, would want an answer to because depending on the scenario, depending on the situation that transpires, Washington would want to know what are you going to do, Japan? Is it going to just be defense of Japan? Is it going to be rear area support of US forces? Is it going to be more forward leaning, maybe in the East China Sea with its maritime self-defense force ships or air self-defense force aircraft? There's a whole host of, of mission sets that I think Japan um, is capable of playing. And I think the United States would like to have those conversations. I'm sure we are having those conversations. But publicly, none of that has been stipulated by any Japanese officials. And so, but that it really is, there's a legal basis, but it comes down to the political willingness of the sitting prime minister. Right. Um, General Master, to keep on Taiwan, then we'll shift to South China Sea where it's a lot of the, the same issues. Um, if you were back in your old job in the White House, seeing that Taiwan is becoming more of a, an immediate issue now, what would you be seeing as what the U.S. would want or be pushing Japan to do beyond this strong uh, statements of support, but not a, a commitment? Is, is it, would we tell them that this is your own security and then given your collective self-defense legislation, this could be one of those roles that Japan could play, but then the other hand, you don't want to push too far and go beyond what Japan would be willing to do. Well, I, th I think the way to frame it is 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 in in connection with the alliance that already exists, right? The U.S.-Japan alliance and the commitment to for, uh, to mutual defense and defense of J Japan, and and I think there's a, there's a lot that can be done in terms of maturing the SDF capabilities that are complementary to the capabilities that the U.S. have in Northeast Asia and can and then could deploy to, to Northeast Asia, and and I think I would focus on that first, right? Because I think that's going to be important to the overall the overall objective of convincing, again, the, the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese Communist Party, that they would be unable to accomplish their objectives through the use of force in Taiwan. And of course, you know, the, you know in, the, in the, the southwestern islands, I mean, defense capabilities oriented on Japan's southwestern islands have a tremendous complementary effect to what we would want to achieve in terms of deterring China from acting on Taiwan. And of course, you know, you know deterrence is capability times will. And I think over time we would work you know, with Japanese leaders and, and really I think our own populations and others in the region to explain the importance of deterring aggression from China. And if China does take aggressive action that threatens our security and our vital interests, uh, that we have to have options available to respond. I think it's important to note, though, in our democracies, right, the, the people have a say, right, in, in, in uh, the use of force and matters involving literally life and death. So. I think we, we can't probably determine too much in advance, but I think the work that we can do just in the context of defend, the defense of Japan and the development of complementary capabilities, not redundant capabilities, I think we could achieve quite a bit. Well, continuing along those lines, but further afield from Japan, the South China Sea, um, obviously not the proximity to Japan, but of, of great interest to Japan given the sea lines of communication their reliance on, on trade. Um, Japan, in recent years, has done a lot with sort of military assistance programs, uh, relation, improving foreign policy and diplomatic and security relationships uh, with Australia, with India, 
through other Southeast Asian nations. How do they see their role in South, the South China Sea? Is it just sort of supporting those that are facing up to Chinese encroachment on their sovereignty, or would they be willing to participate in freedom of navigation operations, either singularly or, or multilaterally? Well, as you know, Japanese submarines have already been active in, in that area in the South China Sea, I think for, you know, for valid reasons, right, that, that this is the area uh, through which one-third of the world's surface trade flows. It's essential to Japan's survival and, 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 uh, and, and to their economy. Uh, and, and I think what Japan has done uh, in the economic realm is immensely important. For example, you know, Japan's taken the lead on the World Trade Organization actions to call out various forms of Chinese economic aggression. Uh, Japan has taken the lead on establishing standards for infrastructure investment internationally to help countries have alternatives right, to the debt trap uh, that China sets to create these servile relationships. Japan has been a full participant in, in, uh, in investigating offensive cyber and cyber espionage against us. I recall the, uh, the December 2018 indictments and sanctions against Advanced Persistent Threat 10, uh, the, the main arm of, of Chinese industrial espionage. So I, I think that there may be a, a, a gradual evolution to a role in greater security cooperation. Japan has championed the Quad, right? When I think you know, India was pretty reluctant about it for all sorts of reasons that we understand. Um, uh, but you know, when you start having your soldiers bludgeoned to death, it kind of clarifies what's at stake. And, and so I, I think the role that Japan has played in other realms is on a natural evolution towards security cooperation as well. And of course, that will be done at a pace determined by Japanese leaders and the Japanese people. Jeffrey, this sort of South China Sea SDF role? Yeah, I, I think, um, so So, um, following on with what General McMaster said, I think the Japanese see themselves as having uh, a role in competition, maybe not so much in conflict, but in competition. And, and you see with their security cooperation, whether it be selling, you know, planes and, and radars to the Philippines or ships to Indonesia or, you know, deepening their security ties with, with Vietnam and the Philippines, they definitely see a role in trying to expand maritime domain awareness, strengthening Coast Guard capabilities, just trying to prevent, um, help these states to, to help themselves, essentially, against Chinese aggression. Um, but because the Japanese do not have a, a analog to the freedom of navigation program that the U.S. has, the Japanese, um, they don't engage in FONOPS per se, but they do, as, as General McMaster said, they transit and they transit that region a lot. And even though they don't call it a FONOP, they, their persistence, their, their, you know, their, their continuous transit throughout the region, making port calls at strategic locations, does send a message to the Chinese that, um, you know, when in combination with the Brits out there, the French, the US, when the Chinese look to the South China Sea and claim that that's their lake, well, you have a lot of like-minded states that are transiting that region and doing what they want where they want. And I think the Japanese see their role as part of that. Um, we're going to turn to questions from our audience soon, but I, I can't not raise North Korea, a topic that I followed for a long time. It's helped me pay my mortgage for 28 years. Um, you know, obviously in recent years, North Korea has gone really on a spree of, of weapons testing. They unveiled five new systems in 2019 through tests. Just the, the past month or so, they've unveiled another five new weapon systems. Um, Long-range cruise missile, which could reach all or most of, of Japan. 
even more recent submarine launch missile, which could be used against Japan. Um, how has Japan responded to that, and how do we think Prime Minister Kushida will? He's, you know, he's he's raised the idea of strike capabilities, whether that was just sort of playing to conservative voters in, in the recent election, or whether he now will incorporate that into his own thinking. So, uh, General McMaster, we'll start with you on North Korea. I think, I think Japanese leaders have been thinking really clearly about the, the threat from North Korea, and I think that uh, they, they have really come to the conclusion that we, what we ought to do is maybe not repeat the failed pattern of previous efforts to reduce the threat from North Korea, and especially in the area of, of denuclearization. And of course, that pattern has been to make concessions to the North Koreans just for the privilege of talking to them, and then and giving them big payoffs, you know, economic payoffs and direct payments oftentimes, entering into long, drawn-out negotiations that are bottom-up, that are subjected to a great deal of frustration, uh, during which we make concession after concession, and then sign up for a weak agreement that locks in the status quo as the new normal, uh, and then allows the North Koreans just to break it again and repeat the cycle. So let's not do that. And, and I think we had complete agreement with Japanese leaders when I, just years ago now, uh, when I was National Security Advisor, on that and some se several principles I think that were important for coping with this issue. And maybe foremost among those was to, to really try to do everything we can to convince Kim Jong-un that the Kim family regime is more secure without the weapons than he is with them. And to do that through economic sanctions and isolation and the UN Security Council resolutions that put in place an unprecedented uh, group of sanctions that have yet to be fully enforced. And then, of course, the old trick, you know, the old effort of trying to get China to do more uh, and to do more maybe potentially with secondary sanctions even against Chinese banks if they're circumventing, to do more from an interdiction perspective. But then also to build up defense capabilities that we've been discussing to, you know, to convince Kim Jong-un, he cannot gain the course of power he wants with the, the, these capabilities. I think we have never really tried that out completely, and I think the, the, the tendency may be to shift back to the old way. I hope not. But I, who knows if this is going to work? But I think we have to test the thesis, at least, that Kim Jong-un might be convinced that he's, his regime is safer without them than he is with them. Jeffrey, you may have heard of something called Aegis Ashore as, as one <laughs> response to the, the growing North Korean missile threat, and that uh, was canceled. But yeah, how, how do you think th they have responded, and, and the new prime minister, which direction is he going to go? So I think the, the, the piece that's been missing for a long time for Japan has been, I'll take this in a different direction, but it's been close relations with South Korea. Um, and if, you know, during, during the... Um, all the diplomacy that was happening during the Trump administration, there was a saying in Japan that they're you know, outside of the mosquito net because they saw all the U.S. and the Koreans and then Chinese, everybody's talking to everybody except Japan. Japan was not part of the process. And it was an analog to the old Korea passing when South Korea felt like they were they left were. out. Right, right. But <laughs> I, I think you have a situation where relations have been so bad for so long between Japan and South Korea that it gets hard to, to think about creative ways to try to jumpstart that relationship. And until our two allies can actually get on to some sort of constructive working level where they can talk about their shared security concerns, I think until we get to that point, it's going to be difficult for Japan to play any sort of any constructive role with the North Korea situation. Now, Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida, there is a hope here 
Um, given that he was the foreign minister during the time that the Abe administration negotiated the Comfort Women Agreement. And so there is a hope that Prime Minister Kishida may be able to push this into a new direction. But as, as everybody who's listening knows, um, you know, politics in both countries plays a very tricky role. And so it's going to be with the presidential election coming up in South Korea, um, and, and with the election at the end of this month in Japan, and, and we don't know how strong Prime Minister Kishida will be after that election politically, it's difficult to say how, how bilateral ties, how much political capital or political will there's going to be to try to improve ties. But I do think that that's an important part in order for Japan to play a more constructive role with North Korean issues. Right. And, and just to add, add something, Bruce, I'd like to ask you the, the same question, to answer your own question, because you're the real expert on this. But the, uh, but the, the, uh, you know, I think this is important in connection with China as well, right? China, as you know, has been making some really some significant overtures to the South Koreans to try to maybe pull them more closer in based on this sort of co this approach of co-option and, 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 and coercion. And I think that every time they see North Korea dividing our friends, dividing South Korea and Japan, rather than bring us together, it, it, it uh, reduces any incentive for China to play a more productive role. But I, I would love to hear your thoughts on on the North Korea threat and Japan's role and what more can be done. Well, we should go to the audience. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it, clearly the, the military capabilities of North Korea have been increasing. We've seen all, all the nuclear and missile systems that have been developed and improved and, and augmented. Um, and we can debate the viability of missile defense and all that. I, mean, I think certainly having the trilateral relationship as good, the U.S., South Korea, Japan, is in all our interests. And I think we've, many of us have frequently tried to counsel our Japanese and South Korean friends on the need to focus on the millennium, this millennium's threats rather than a, focusing on that of the last millennium. Um, but it's difficult, as, as both of you pointed out, the, the political factors and even just the, the public factors where there's such a, in Japan there's South Korea fatigue, in South Korea there's Japan fatigue, in Washington there's sort of Japan and South Korea fatigue, uh, and that we're trying to focus on, on the future, and even to the point where on missile defense, the U.S. and Japan have an integrated system, but South Korea refuses to integrate their system in because of historic differences, and it's like having three baseball outfielders who refuse to talk to each other. We all know if you're talking to each other, you can catch a ball or intercept a missile because you have different uh, vantage points on it. But, um, you know, we've, I think we've all tried to counsel that uh, we can't defend South Korea without Japan. And if the relationship is, is bad at the time, a Japanese prime minister might say, why should I risk a nuclear attack on, on my country for a country that we don't have good relations with? Um, and then J South Korea has its views of what Japan should be doing prior to uh, improving relations. So I, I think, you know, for any administration, what we have to try to do is work behind the scenes rather than looking like a public arbiter on which ally is right or wrong, because I think there's a lot at fault with both allies and their actions over uh, recent years. So if we work behind the scene, even stern messages, but privately, trying to urge them to make reconciliation, at least move the, the historic issues to the side, if not solve them, at least mitigate them to the point where we can focus on other issues. Um, but it's, it's an issue, the trilateralism is, is issue has been one that's uh, dogged a lot of U.S. administrations. 
So I want to open the floor to first our in-house uh, audience, and if you could identify yourself in any organization. Uh, first, here, Kevin. Hello, I'm Kevin Mayer from Innovy Consulting for the State Department. Putting aside the, the very important um, resiliency issues that you discussed, what advice would you have for our Japanese friends in terms of how do they use their budget to focus on the what areas do they need to focus on to actually implement what's become a very good security policy? My personal view is we need to move beyond interoperability towards real integration and real networking, but do you think the Japanese support that and does the U.S. support that? Well, I mean, I just have to comment on this, but I just think we have to look at really the key capabilities and how we integrate each of these under you know, a, a command and control system, a, a, a coordination system that is that you rehearse and everybody understands their roles and and uh, and of course this takes time to develop but there and there has to be a willingness to do it but what are some of those capabilities that would allow uh, Japan to deter we talked about the importance of missile defense but those may be integrated with with the long-range precision strike capabilities as part of the missile defense capability but then there are other capabilities that are I think important uh, to you know, to defending Japan and I would include electronic warfare uh, Offensive cyber capabilities, uh, tiered and layered air, air defense, uh, for for example, and and of course the SDF has these capabilities, but ensuring that they're complementary with ours. And I know that, I mean, U.S. Pacific Command, uh, U.S. forces uh, in in Japan work on this continuously, and, and I've been out of date now for a while, uh, but but I think that that what's important to do is to use scenarios, to to test uh, our our mutual defense capabilities identify gaps and opportunities, and then work together, really for, and from a long-term perspective, on procuring the right systems and integrating them into organizations that develop real capabilities, but in the near term, right, to figure out how to fill those gaps with different tactics and procedures. So I, I think that's the important work, near-term and short-term based on scenarios and working together to identify gaps and opportunities. Yeah, and, and I would add to that, um, if you look at just the the likelihood of, of warfare in that part of the world is going to be maritime or air. It's, it's unlikely to be ground. And so, um, you know, General McMaster hit a lot of the things that I was thinking about in terms of, you know, cyber, electronic warfare. Um, I, I would even say, you know, given that China's focusing a lot on technology and sort of the future network kind of warfare, Japan does need to think more about things like uh, directed energy, um, AI, um, space assets. Um, th there's just a whole host of things that they, their legacy systems, I think, they, in terms of what they have with their maritime self-defense forces and air self-defense force, there needs to be some modernization with their air self-defense force fleet, and we have, they're still deciding on their future fighter. Um, but I think when you start to look at you know, moving forward, they are putting a lot of money right now into things like uh, space, cyber, and, and electronic warfare, but there needs to be a lot more. And, and it's not to say that they're not going to get there, but when you look at their neighbor to the west that's making leaps and bounds in terms of their progress, I think there needs to be a little bit more of a concerted effort and, and hard decisions on what the future of warfare looks like and where their limited resources should actually be devoted. And for respect to just add one more thing, again from the economic dimension, of course China's doing its best to gain a preponderant position of influence over global supply chains and especially supply chains involving 
critical capabilities like rare earths and battery manufacturing, and then, of course, semiconductors, what we've all been concerned about. So I think that also our plans have to be military in nature, but also economic. And how can the United States and Japan work even more closely together to reduce, to, to, to reduce reliance on fragile supply chains, and especially those that can be easily influenced by uh, the Chinese Communist Party? And, and the problem may be exacerbated as each of the U.S. military services are implementing new strategies and doctrines uh, that will test a lot of the, the U.S. forces. Will Japan be able to keep up as we start running even faster and adopting new strategies, at sort of whether it's an outside-in or, or inside-out uh, military strategy? So, you know, that will be a whole new area of challenge for Japan to try to incorporate as we move in new directions. Uh, sir, you had a question. Hi, my name is Takami Hanza from Kyoto News. It's a great honor to be here with General. And it's nice to see you, Honan-san, in person finally, after a long, uh, long time. Uh, I have one question about the Chinese public opinion. Uh, I, I read some stories about uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese public opinion poll by, conducted by uh, Global Times. And they, that was like, a, uh, the question was, uh, do you think uh, China, Chinese mainland, China, Chinese government can use or should use force to reunite Taiwan? And it was like 60% yes uh, four years ago, and it, there's a report that it, it's increasing. Since I believe the war starts with two things. One is, of course, guns. And the other one is public opinion, as, as, uh, as our history tells us. How serious do we need to take it? Uh, take uh, how serious do we need to take it serious? I mean, Chinese Chinese public opinion. And is there anything Japan can do, or is there anything U.S. can do to say, to make uh, to keep them cool? Well, I, you know, I, I do think that the uh, the you know, the party's efforts to, to sort of uh, to generate jingoistic nationalism is tied to the party's effort to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on power and its fear, right, its fear of losing its, its exclusive grip on power. And I think it's probably going to get worse because I think Xi Jinping thinks he has a fleeting window of opportunity to act on Taiwan, you know, before the Chinese population grows old, before they grow rich before that he sees even more problems in, in the economy and, 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 uh, and the economic frailties that he has developed in his, his race to surpass the United States. We see this with the over-leveraging of debt in the real estate sector, for example. And, uh, and I think he, he feels he's in a race to really make good his legacy, what he's promised uh, once he you know, becomes the leader for life in the next party Congress or even in the sixth plenum, which is coming up here soon. So I, I think it is a period of increasing danger, and you see this with even, you know, the movies that are released in China and the messages that they deliver to the population. So what can we do about it? I think what we can do is clarify our intentions. We can double down on this idea, right, that we're not trying to keep the, the, the reality. We're trying to keep the Chinese people down. What, we, what we're doing is we're defending our interests against the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party. And it is a choice between sovereignty and servitude. It's not a choice between Washington and Beijing, so to counter some of these misunderstandings. But doing so, I think, should entail a concerted effort to bypass China's great firewall, right? And, and I think we ought to try to reach the Chinese population with information, 
Of course, the party's racing to shut down any space to do that by expelling journalists, by persecuting their own uh, journalists in internally, and to build that firewall higher and higher. But I think now maybe with new technologies, lower Earth orbit communication satellites, for example, like Skylink, other ways, I think we ought to think more creatively about how we reach the Chinese people with an alternative source of, of, of information. To that, the, Japan, you know, a lot of the defense issues that we've talked about, Japan and the United States can continue doing that. But in terms of the messaging, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party is doing it for itself in terms of, you know, the genocide that they're committing against the Uyghurs, the, the crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong, the, the violence against the Indians, the, you know, the, the provocations against South China Sea, Taiwan, Japan. It's not a mystery why Japan is getting closer with, you know, putting out statements with the with UN or G7 on, on genocide or on Hong Kong, getting closer with India, being more vocal on Taiwan. Japan is helping to give that diplomatic breathing space to a lot of these issues that don't, maybe wouldn't otherwise get the, the, the time of day that, that, that they're getting. Um, the more, to, to sort of augment General McMaster's point, the more that states like Japan can emphasize the point that this is not a choice between the United States and China, that there are other states that are like-minded as the United States, and that it, it's a whole host of free and open countries that do view Chinese Communist Party actions as, as bad. And it's not, a, it's not that Japan or other states are against the Chinese people, but they're against the Chinese Communist Party's policies and actions that they're taking. And that's the point that I think that the Japanese government and others should be making all the time, that it's not against the Chinese people. The China, China has a very rich culture, rich heritage, uh, and the Chinese people should be proud of that. But what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to its neighbors and to its own people should be pointed out and should be criticized. And maybe we can point out, I, I would say for, for Bruce, you know, that they're becoming West North Korea, you know, and, and uh, is that the path you want to be on? I mean. uh, Mark, why don't we take uh, two questions and then, uh, yeah, first Mark and then, and then here, we'll, we'll, if you could just, we'll take both questions and then have a have response. Okay, thank you. I'm Mark Tokola from the Korea Economic Institute, and this may invite a short answer, so I heard we can pass along. Is there any reason why we should pay attention to Russia-Japan relations? It seems like now and then they're on the verge of their territorial disputes being resolved, but it never seems to happen. I mean, do we need Japan to work deal with Russia? And also, we can collect a question from the woman here. Thank, thank you for taking my question. Um, I'm Mia Tanaka from Korea News. Um, I would like to ask about the a US, possible U.S. deployment of the intermediate-range missile on Japan's soil. Um, how critical, how crucial it is for the security of the Indo-Pacific region to deploy such a missile on Japan? And what would you think will be the major hurdle for the deployment? Well, two simple topics, uh, Russia-Japanese <laughs> relations and INF missiles. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, think, I think it is in all of our interest to have as good of relations with entities in Russia and entities in China that are not acting as an arm of either Vladimir Putin's Kremlin or the CCP in a way that's hostile to us. So I think cultivating longer-term relations so that if, if those regimes evolve in a way that, that reduces their hostility to us, 
that, that we, can, we can foster better relations. I think uh, economic, uh, you know, economic dependence on, on Russia for, for, you know, for fuel sources, for example, would not be in Japan's interest because I think that it's clear that Japan and China are cooperating with each other more than ever. Uh, but I do think that at some point in the future, could there be a return of triangular diplomacy where we have better relations each with China and Russia than they have with each other because there are natural tensions between Russia and China, border tensions, vast differences in, in population, the needs of, of their economies, which are complementary now, but unless Russia wants to continue on the path that is on, to, on economic stagnation, that might create tensions. So I don't think there's any harm in good relations, but I do think you know, the, the uh, Japanese leaders should be realistic about Vladimir Putin's willingness to resolve t territorial disputes and not make any concessions, obviously, in, in advance of any kind of agreement like that. If I could just address that question first. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are some officials, experts, you name it, within Japan that, that think strategically like that, that if we could just make good relations with, with Russia, maybe we could drive a wedge with China and Russia. I, I think it makes sense, too, that if Japan can resolve that issue, at least one territorial dispute, they have a narrative on their side that says, hey, we, we at least we can, we can resolve these disputes, that we're not, we're not just blind to, the, to one message here and we can actually do this. But, uh, um, I do, I share General McMaster's concerns that um, at times maybe some of the, some of the ideas about what, what's going to transpire in a, to get us across the goal line is not necessarily realistic. I think that um, when you're dealing with a leader like Putin and to think that he's just going to give up two islands or one and a half islands and, and then be done with it and this is going to be an easy deal, I'm not convinced that, that I'm not saying Prime Minister Abe was like that. I'm not saying that all officials are like that. But sometimes you hear arguments out of experts that, that make it sound so easy when we've, Putin's proven that it's anything but easy. Um, but then, but then um, to the second question, and then I'll, uh, I'll turn it back. I think, um, you know, I, I remember when um, Secretary Esper, when he went to the region after the INF, uh, after the United States withdrew. And, it wasn't just Japan. It, you know, to be fair, it, you know, Secretary Esper said we'd like to get missiles somewhere in the region. Um, I think, from the United States standpoint, being able to put such capabilities uh, somewhere in the region is, you know, it, from a strategic standpoint, important. Whether that's Japan or whether that's another U.S. ally, I think that's something that this administration, I know the previous administration, this administration, is something they're trying to find. It's the challenge is always going to be largely political. Because try to convince an ally to put offensive strike weapons on their territory when they might not be involved in a conflict with China, might make them an automatic target, that's hard. And to go back to the Aegis Ashore um, issue, this was a defensive system with the C2 owned and operated by Japan, and that proved too difficult. To try to think that an offensive system under owned and operated by the United States is going to be easier when you had someone with the political capital of Abe and he was unable to do it, I think it becomes even trickier to think how any leader that does not have that level of political capital to be able to convince the Japanese public to put offensive strike capabilities on their territory is, is okay and it's a good idea. I think it's going to be an uphill challenge. Not saying that there's not a need for it, 
I mean, there is an argument to be made strategically for having long-range fires, either in Japan, Philippines, Thailand, you know, you name it, one of the U.S. allies. But it's a challenge, and I think the challenge is going to be largely political in nature. I, I agree, and I think just the question is, what is the degree to which the employment uh, and, and, and placement of missiles contributes to de deterring conflict? And if it's a necessary element to deter conflict, I think that can be persuasive, right? And, and, uh, and I think it ought to be placed in the context of, of defense against these proliferating and more and more dangerous long-range precision strike systems that our adversaries, rivals, potential enemies are developing. Well, and, and you mentioned the Aegis Ashore, which is defensive, and the THAAD missile deployment in South Korea, also purely defensive. But uh, China pushed very strongly against South Korea deploying that. Uh, putting out a lot of lies that it was could intercept Chinese ICBMs, et cetera, which is totally false. Uh, but it took a lot of initiative and effort on the U.S. part to get the defensive missiles deployed, and, and they're not even fully deployed now. We're still having lots of trouble uh, with the basing there. Um, China would put a full court press on any country accepting offensive missiles. and. So right now the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps are going to be adopting longer range strike missiles into their new strategies. Uh, so it may be something that is done more at the time of a crisis rather than the, the full bore, will you accept offensively, offensive missiles on your territory you know, now? So that could just be something that whether a prime, Japanese prime minister without Abe's standing could do it or would he do it? There are many other issues that he would probably focus on. Well, I think we've, we've actually run over time, and I know we still have questions here in our audience. We never even got to the ones from our virtual audience, but I think uh, the sign of a, of a good uh, conference is you run out of time, but long before you run out of, out of questions. So uh, I've had a lot of fun. I've learned a lot, and I hope our audience, both here and virtually, did as well. And I just want to thank both of you for, for taking the time and to be here in person, I think that gave, is a much uh, better dynamic than doing it uh, through all the many Zoom and Skype and other meetings we've had. So thank you very much, and uh, I, I greatly appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Bruce. Thanks for your Thank you.